Let's cut to the chase. The world of work is changing. There's no stopping that change. Welcome to the Better Work Project, brought to you by the team at SoftEd. I'm your host, David Mantica, and joining me as co-host is Andy Cooper and Lauren Gibson. In this podcast, we will explore the changing world of work, what the future of work means, how it affects businesses and workers alike, and how we can create more productive and engaged workplaces. I hope you join us for the ride. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Better Work Project. We're back here with episode 27. This is a no guest podcast. The person who's supposed to get guests failed miserably. And that'd be you, right? And we are... <laughs> yes, yes, I failed. I sent a note out to 15 people. They all ignored me because I'm not worth their time. So we have no guests. What do you think about that? Does that scare you? I mean, there's three of us. I think we'll we'll manage, right? What do you think, Andy? Can we manage this, or should we go ahead and cancel? No, and get no, a no. we're we're fine. If we have to just have to create a new business model, right? Because that's what we're talking about: business models. Yep. But before we get into the business models, tell me about your fall. What's going on? Anything strange, unique, different? By fall, you mean autumn? Oh, Lord uh, have yeah. mercy. Here we go, mom and mom. <laughs> I also learned today, folks, that you don't say mom in their part of the world. It's mum. What? <laughs> Well, that that's right? the Not time quite. of champagne, which yes, we do we do say <laughs> quite a bit with all the celebrations that we do, but we certainly don't say mum. That maybe maybe the English mum would be typically how it would be uh, said in this part of the world. But how's it spelled? M U M, not M O M. Well, then I just commented on the internal fracas that was happening because of this, mm-hmm. and the person said I was close but not right when I spelled it M U M. I think it was more your pronunciation, was it not? I don't know, man. I just think you guys use me as the butt of all your jokes. This is what happens <laughs> to all Americans, actually. At the can, end of the day, can neither the confirm world... nor deny. What's that? Say that again. Can neither confirm nor deny. Yes, I think you guys use Americans as the butt of all your jokes, and we never get it. Yeah, well, I learned something today about your your Florida man. Do you want what to tell about... the audience about? Oh yeah, Florida tell them. About... Yes, you learned about Florida. Tell them what you learned about Florida. I, I learned so much about American culture. People of Walmart, and there's lots of good examples, right? <laughs> I taught Lauren today <laughs> that if anything weird happens in the United States, it happens in Florida for a lot of different reasons, which most of our listeners from America will understand. And I didn't get it because I, I thought that nothing happens in Florida. And that was the point. Uh, it's exact Just opposite. good weather, good beaches. No, man. That's like, I, I told her, like, it's five miles, not even five miles, maybe four, three miles from the oceans, either side, the Gulf Coast side or the Atlantic Ocean side, five miles after that, it's chaos, insanity, mm-hmm. and craziness, including alligators, snakes, which don't belong there, but now rule the roost, and lots of other critters that will eat you, kill you, or do other things to you. Sounds a bit Sounds like Australia, exciting. actually. Oh, it's very. Yes, actually, that's a great comparison. <laughs> I never thought about that. And the thing about it is Disney... This is why I still believe that Walt Disney sold his soul to the devil, but that's a whole other story. He wow. plunked his crazy kingdom in the middle of a desolate swamp. I have no idea why it worked out. And it's the most abysmal place to be in like July, August, June in the U.S. It's so miserably hot. It's- and hello to all of our listeners in Florida. <laughs> all two of you. Yeah, I'll swap you for for winter. Well, this is also a great case of why business models are so important. Mm -hmm. And in Disney, there's no logical reason why his 
beautiful magic kingdom would actually work. And it did. And a lot of it has to do with his business model and, you know, the logic that it went into what he was trying to achieve and wrapping it around all the other great stuff that they were doing. Great segue, Dave. Yeah. You like that? Mm-hmm. So let's jump into it then. And, you know, today's podcast, we're going to talk about huh? business models. Business models are not a product. Business models are the way in which you deliver a product or a service or the way in which you market a product or a service or a way in which you sell a product or service. This includes how you provide customers with value and how you provide that service potentially less expensively with less friction and ultimately with higher profits. And a lot of times what looks like a winning, you know, profit making product when you really dig down deep into the soul of that product and the impact that product has on your company may end up being a noose that is choking your organization to death. It's taking its very oxygen from you, which is profit. <laughs> there are plenty of companies doing this well, business models, and there has been plenty of companies that have done it well in the past. Currently, you know, companies like Netflix and their whole change in how content is created and distributed. Spotify with regard to how music is distributed. Airbnb, how we get another place to stay when we're out traveling. Uber, how we get a car when we're drunk. These are just a few of companies that have taken the business model, similar product, similar offering, but adjusted the business model and have reaped benefits from that. But they just didn't get there magically. There's no, there's not magic here. There's thought, testing, and, and there has to be an understanding. So how can you help your company to get it right? Even if you're working on internal products, services, and solutions, because we know a lot of folks that listen to this podcast, you know, a lot of you are internal project managers, internal agile professionals, internal business analysts. And I think you're all starting to see that what you build internally actually ultimately gets sold in some way, shape, fashion, or form, whether externally through efficiencies and productivity gains, or, or I'm sorry, internally through efficiencies or productivity gains, or externally through the sale of a service or solution. So we're going to get into it. We're going to teach you about the fundamentals of business models, how to innovate and change your business model, and how business models create value. And again, it's just the three of us because I failed in my pursuit of a guest. Actually, we that we're joking. We decided that this was a topic that the three of us could cover very nicely. So, Miss Gibson, it's over to you. Yeah, and the truth is that it's a topic David's really passionate about. So he's <laughs> going to be he's going to be our guest today, aren't you? Maybe, 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 yeah. maybe. I do, I do we'll love this topic immensely. Likewise. So I want to start with I, I think what seems like an obvious question, but business models do get misunderstood somewhat. So what exactly is a business model, Dave? Okay, so we want to make it we want to make it clear. We want to provide some practical, you know, examples. So. Are you in the business of selling the printer? Are you in the business of selling the printer ink? There's a business model decision to be made there. All right. So in most cases right now, the printing companies resell the printers for cheaper, potentially at cost or a little bit of margin because a long-term advantage is in selling the printing ink. So they'll actually create the printers to use ink quicker, use ink less efficiently. So basically the business model then becomes what element of that service and solution are you primarily selling? And then how are you selling that? So you think of HP as a printer company. At the end of the day, it's an ink company that just happens to use printers to deliver that ink. 
Taking it another step further, we want to look at this as it relates to selling. So if a, a business model would be how you sell as well. So do you sell direct? And do you sell direct using marketing? So we'll just market brochures or to your mailbox. Or do you market direct with infomercials? And then ultimately, how do you distribute that? product and what type of distributing technologies or distributing solutions do you use? So your business model is how you ultimately get what you do into the hands of people who will use it. And it becomes a situation where you can have a mighty fine product, but a broken business model or a business model that takes has too much friction, which ultimately can reduce your profits. Or you could have a cool product, but within a world that people no longer want to deal with. And of course, that's one of the primary examples of why Blockbuster died. Blockbuster mm -hmm. was a video chain. Video chain. Guess who does videos? We watch videos. Everybody still watches movies. We all watch movies. It's the same product. That's it's just now delivered in a completely different way yeah, than it was initially you, delivered. How you deliver value in the hands of your customers. Yeah. Yes. How do you give them something? How do you give mm -hmm. them something they want? That's, you know, all my babbling aside, very good point, Miss Gibson. Yes. How do you deliver something that somebody wants and do it in a way to maximize your return? Mm. Andy, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that's quite a good definition. I quite like the business model canvas, which we'll probably cover later on as sort of way of laying that out. It's quite widely used and useful. A lot of people use it. Just, I suppose, an example that illustrated that, which I, I've sort of read, and we always talk about the Kodak moments, how Kodak didn't mm -hmm. transition from, you know, from its original premise to the digital world. And I think, you know, what I've read recently, which sort of made that really clear was that what Kodak was at heart was a chemical and film organization. And they had very little understanding of electronics and how to manufacture and distribute electronics. And that was the main reason why they d ignored that that whole move because that wasn't really their business model. Mm -hmm. But the that's it. Was, they invented the technology. They did. Exactly. Did they but so, wasn't there, they, they knew and understood the whole business of film and they were the best at it. So, and they optimized their business around purchasing the chemicals, around creating the paper that would best operate and be efficient and, and showing the film. They weren't focused on the value of the picture itself. Hmm. And when you got to the fact of the picture itself, if someone could produce that picture without as much costs, AKA electronic picture, then that just blew their mind. They didn't know how to price that. They didn't know how to go to market with that. And they didn't, weren't able to see the value. They could probably at the beginning laughed it off as a joke. Who would want a picture on a screen? Mm. Pictures are tangible. You put them in frames. What are you talking about a picture on a computer? That's stupid. I, I think that's a nice point to, jump into our next question so why do you think people have a hard time distinguishing between a product and business model i think the product thing becomes because our minds are wrapped around the, the, the product as being the end-all know-all it's like okay i i'm gonna sell this football and that football i'm gonna make the football a certain way and and and, it, and i'm gonna make it you know lighter weight or i'm gonna put more in the football being american football here the oblong goofy thing that you guys all make fun of and i'm gonna put a certain type of leather on it i'm gonna do a type of stitching right and my expertise is gonna be in the production of that football and it, it kind of ties back to something called the e-myth which is 
And just like Andy was saying with Kodak, the product to them was really at the end of the day, the chemicals, the process of creating that picture and putting it onto the paper. And in most cases, people initially get wrapped around the fact that the product is that thing they created and they don't understand, as you were saying, why people use that thing and, and what are they going to use it for and, and then how is it going to transition over time? And you don't think about the fact that ultimately, what is it that you're providing those people? You know, the picture example is I'm providing a memory. And I want to be able to have as many memories as possible. And what happened with the digital camera was you could just have thousands of memories. And I think that's part of it is the the e-myth is that the person who makes the product is wrapped around that product and not what the product does or the emotions that it elicits Mm. and where that product can go as things change. And it's the combination, right, of of a, a product that the customer wants and how you can monetize that. Yeah, that's now going back to the business model in the economic terms of it is, all right, as technologies change, if I can understand the root of the value, then maybe I can deliver that value differently. Well, and maybe I can deliver that value in such a way as I can increase my profits and reduce my friction. And the, the e-commerce thing, I, I still think it blows people's minds that someone will buy a pair of pants online and, and not go try it on at a store. But the right. reduction in friction is so incredible that it's worth just, you know, oh, it doesn't fit, wrapping it up and sending it back again. Mm. And then think about the reduced reduction in inventory costs and the reduction in, you know, physical infrastructure costs that that has driven and why we have such a proliferation of, of e-commerce. And you look at Amazon. I mean, Amazon is not big products. It's made up of thousands of little e-commerce vendors of all crazy types of products. And that's what's really made their engine go. Yeah, it's the marketplace. It's the choice and yes. it's the, the delivery. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to explore how a business model creates value. So you were talking about that before, Dave. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, because, you know, ultimately it's it's not necessarily the product. It's the person that can get that need in the hands of somebody as effectively as possible to reduce the effort that that person has to get to get it and reduce the effort the company has to have to deliver it and maintain the same level of happiness or utility from an economic perspective that the person gets. So I do believe there will always be some physical retail because there's a certain segment of society that gets a high level of utility from being out in public shopping and looking and touching. But the frictionless nature of e-commerce is thus that it, it, it drives more folks to ultimately find another way to spend that time and thus the utility reduces. And, and I think the other aspect that happened that I don't think anybody realized on the e-commerce side was the value of getting credible third-party opinion about what you're looking at. So the business model becomes the critical value for the company if making profit and, and reducing cost. But 
it still creates value in the person getting it because it reduces the amount of effort they have to do or the amount of work they have to do to get the thing they want. Yeah, interesting you talk about sort of the power being in the hands now of a consumer, particularly in a in an e-commerce environment via social proof and the amount of information that they have at their disposal and the different ways that they can get that information has really been a bit of a game changer. Well, Andy, look at the, the, B2B, wanna... the B2B selling market is getting hugely disrupted right now because traditionally the B2B selling market, you know, I sell, I sell a software solution, I sell a medical device, I'm going to send a sales representative out there to bang it out. I don't want that anymore. It's friction. It's time. I can find all that information out on my own. And now the B2B selling market is becoming more of a marketing market to give the folks the information. And the salesmanship is turning into relationship management and customer support and success over hardcore, you know, salesmanship, aka the old traveling salesperson, you know, running around the, your country with the vacuum cleaner in the back of their car, pushing you to buy. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about friction and obviously with with COVID that has been quite interesting. A lot of consumers that haven't been huge users of e-commerce have sort of had to be forced into that. And now they've had that experience, the friction's been removed, they've seen it as, as a good experience and all of a sudden there's a lot of small outlets that didn't have a, a online shop front now do and that's really changed that environment. Well, Lauren, let's take a step on what you're talking about here and look at how I can operate in a different framework. So I am a, I'm somebody who wants to sell something and I see this dynamic going on, but I still have a belief in more of a high touch, high value environment. So I, I may you know, do some research and find out that there is still a segment of the, of the population at a certain area that believes in that I'm going to go want to see something physical. I want to touch it. I want to mm. be a part of it. So I may, my business model may be to create a boutique and that boutique is going to be there for a certain type of clientele. Now I'll have to do my analysis to see if that value, if that business model makes sense, what's my price point going to be, but there is a, a, a opportunity within any one of these areas to say, you know, Hey, I want to do it this way. But now mm. if you're going to do that boutique style, the very nature of a boutique is, is a different type of business altogether. You're not going to scale mm -hmm. your revenue per se, you know, automatically. You're going to have a different type of sales model and you're going to have a different type of out strategy. Yeah, or I've seen, for instance, concept stores. So it might be that delivery is primarily online, but there's still an opportunity for the customer to kind of see and touch and experience whatever they're buying, particularly if it's a, a larger investment. But, but I want to take a bit of a step back. So we've talked a little bit about e-commerce, but let's talk about what makes a good business model? Dave? Well, I think the, 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 what makes a good business model, let's go really basic, is does it make you the maximum amount of profit given what you're trying to do? And does it allow you to have long-term sustainable profit in what you're going to do? Can you it, qualify that a bit more? So when you're talking about good profit for what you're trying to do, Unpack yeah. So if I'm an intern, yeah, if I'm an internal person, if I'm a project manager or I'm working on an internal project, that profit is going to be in efficiency and productivity. So the way I deliver the CRM system to the sales force, I should be trying to maximize the efficiency and the productivity of the people utilizing that system. And mm -hmm. I should try to maximize my utilization rate. So I have to 
evaluate the different ways I could deliver that. And given my demographic, I have to determine, you know, which way is the best for that demographic, for the thing that the sales, for what the sales team is trying to achieve, and then how it fits into our other systems. So ultimately, I'm going to try to maximize productivity and efficiency, which will ultimately maximize profit in the organization. If I'm selling an external product, you know, I want to be able to look at that, look at myself and look at my ability to deliver, how I build it, how I can market it, and then determine, you know, where I can most effectively do that at the best return possible that's going to be sustainable, meaning it's I'm not doing something that's going to last a month or two months. There's there's sustainability to that. And, and, and you know, that sounds very esoteric, but th- then you put it on top of, of something else. And for our example, training, you know, what, you know, where is training going? You know, what are the different business models that you can attack training? And the problem with training in some of the business models is the length of time that a topic lasts. So electronic delivery models for training can seem initially as being very advantageous for long-term returns. That's if the product is stable, if the, if what you're training on is something that's going to last. But the problem in our world is that what we train on doesn't necessarily last. So we have a lot of electronic providers that struggle after three or four years because they're fighting two battles. They're fighting the battle of maintaining their existing content for all the change that occurs within their existing content. And then they're battling the battle of trying to create stuff that's new. So because of that, then you have to really see that and understand it and come to terms with that and define what it is you really are as a training company. And based on my training company experience, it really becomes apparent that training companies aren't training companies, they're marketing and sales companies. And what they market and sale is tech is training and that training changes over time, but their ability to market and sell it doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And Andy was talking earlier about the business model canvas. And I think a lot of our audience will be familiar with that. But for those that are not Andy, do you want to kind of give a bit yeah, of an overview? Sure. So the business model canvas is yeah, pretty simple tool, but simple in, 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 a, in a way, but actually quite difficult to do. That sort of goes through your key activities and unpacks who the customer relationships are, what channels you might use, what, what are the different customer segments, potentially what cost structures might be involved in, in that business model and obviously what revenue streams you may um, have as well. The hardest part generally for most people, which is why they created a separate canvas, is actually trying to figure out what your actual value proposition is, which is the heart of mm-hmm. you know, the business model. Actually, why would a customer buy your product or service? Yeah. Understanding the customer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the jobs to be done yeah. goes really well with this as well because that aligns to you know, what is it, you know, like we described before with the Kodak, what is it that actually our people are buying your product or service for? And a lot of organizations don't really understand that because they don't actually ask. And, new, and Andy, newer products and newer products you no. may not know initially. You got to learn and adapt and adjust. Exactly. And, and it's, and you only find that out. I mean, that's where the jobs to be done interview process is quite illuminating in that it can actually unpack some 
usually emotional triggers as well, because that's often how people buy rather than the sort of logical things yes. Absolutely. That, that you haven't really thought about. And that there can be a lot of ways to deliver uh, on your customer needs. So your, your product could could be wildly different and therefore your, your business model might be different. Yeah. And um, there's been two fundamental disruptions that have affected, you know, our ability in the business world to really deal with this and understand it. The first was the e-commerce revolution that occurred of the first wave of the advent of the internet. And this was, you know, this is where providers started to see that they could sell either subscriptions, content on the internet and people would buy it. And then it morphed from content subscription-based elements to product-based elements over time. And this is the advent of Amazon. And we have the idea of what Amazon's done from a multiple value perspective over time. But just recently, we faced a whole other disruption. That's the digital transformation. And the digital transformation with the idea of, of IoT, which is Internet of Things, you know, now companies have a scenario to decide, are they going to sell the product that they offer? Are they going to sell a subscription to access to the product that they offer? Are they going to sell the data that the product can ultimately gather as a use that someone could utilize? And so now you have almost a four-level way of looking at you know, what you might do that adds so much confusion. And my example is I worked for a B2C wearable device company for, for a period of time, and that was our struggle. We had board members as a startup who were in the B2C product space. We had board members that were in the SaaS software as a service space. We had board members that were in the old distribution and distributor marketplace who didn't sell direct. And we had, we had board members that were in the data space who sold data. And then to top it all off, we had members in the healthcare space. And each one of those board members took a very myopic look at what we should be doing based on their filter. And I, this is the stickiness, and this impacts both people who are selling the product directly and it also impacts the business models of folks who, you know, are servicing internal needs because everybody now immediately goes, let's webify something. And mm-hmm. there are some serv- internal services and solutions that don't make sense to be webified. Just because that's available now doesn't mean you should do it. And I think that's what Andy talks about very well in the business model canvas. And anything about this podcast is if we had a, a visual of a business model, we could go through it. Business models is pricing and pricing is tied to, you know, understanding the, the underlying things that you have to do to service it, the raw materials and the staff to deliver it, your costs of goods sold. A business model has to deal with how you'd actually deliver it to market, direct, wholesale, retail, you know, in that level. And then what's the sales team that you're going to be offering and which way are you going from a sales team perspective? So that canvas lays these things out and underneath that ultimately is getting a better sense of, you know, how you deliver value. I love it. I mean, it, it's, it's just so much depth and challenge. We went to in the, the canvas in the in the show notes, but I, I want to pick up on something you said. You talked about you, you know your example where people tend to focus on areas that they've got expertise in, and yes. I think one of the more interesting business model examples is McDonald's, and they they talked about how you know as a fast food restaurant, actually their business model was more around real estate. And you mentioned a lot of Silicon Valley companies in your introduction. So I kind of want to dive into examples of business models that our audience will be familiar with. 
Do you, do you want to kick off? Yeah, well, the Netflix model is the first one. So the Netflix didn't automatically get, to, get there. The first Netflix model was putting a CD into a, an envelope and sending it to you by the U.S. mail. You know, and that was considered cool. But they were doing something. They were reducing the friction. They were reducing the friction to having to get out of your seat, go to a place, and then hope that the box was there that you could get the CD for. They were guaranteeing you that you would get that. And as long as you delayed your gratification, you would get it. And then over time, they morphed that. And at one point, you know, Blockbuster was going was gonna to look at buying them. And it didn't happen. It was a joke. And you look at the difference that occurred because of that. It's pretty, it's pretty mind-boggling. You know, ultimately, they got to a point where they had to do something or they were going to die. And this is the advent of their concept of the streaming content and then ultimately blowing the doors out of everything when they realized they could create their own content because they had something that none of us had. They had what we were watching in aggregate. And in the show The House of Cards, which was in the U.S. as a derivant of of a U.K. show, became the perfect match based on their data science and statistical analysis to say this is the type of thing that people would watch. And it became a crazy instant win. And they even got to the point where they had their tipping point. Their tipping point was four episodes. Netflix knows after four episodes whether it's going to be a hit or not. It's crazy. And so their business model kind of combined the elements of the data they were capturing. They didn't sell it. They housed that data and kept it for themselves. But they morphed from delivering other people's content to building their own and then banking on that more people would subscribe as they start hearing about these hot new topics. And they deal with their churn because they bring out more new content, which forces somebody to come back in and buy in again because they want to be a part of that content. And now everybody and their mother has their own streaming service. I mean, all the other company, all the other networks have done it. But that's a a particularly interesting one because it was built out of Oh my gosh, we got to do something. Or we're going to die, and I, and so that's one example. I give you a couple other ones. I just what, what's your thoughts? Oh, I was going to say an interesting example. I thought was Apple because when they introduced the the iPod, you'd think that their focus was around hardware, but in fact, it was selling music, and the device was a way to do that. Yes. So, Andy, do you have an example you want to talk to? Or, um, well, I think there are quite a lot of examples illustrate that but one that sort of come to mind to me which is sort of a bridge between an old sort of model and a new model and the challenges that exist there so I've done quite a lot of work with insurance companies and a number of those companies have built their business around you know a a large channel business so they've worked with independent distributors or agents who Mm -hmm. sell insurance and that's been a successful model for these businesses for a long time now we're moving into this digital transformation, digital world, a lot more consumers um, want to purchase online. So that the challenge for these yep. organizations now is how do they how do they sort of create this new world where they preserve the business of their channel, which has been their, you know, which has been their lifeblood, but also provide their customers with a with a choice. And I, I think that a lot of them are struggling with this, how to manage this these different sort of models and keep them, both of them working. Yeah. And you could actually, some, some of them have done that by buying the competitor and having both operate in, in, in the same, in the same holding company per yeah. se. And I also want to take a step back on the Apple example, because Apple learned that 
from so if you look back in like 1989 1990 apple was just about dead their stock price was absolutely abysmal and it was about ready to fall apart and then you know the first thing that they did is they realized the computer was no longer just a processing thing it was an extension of who i was and they came out with their line of macbooks and if you remember anything about the macbooks it's all about style and color and and making yourself look hip and cool and that's where the advent of the Mac versus PC commercials came from, where the the, the the MacBook was cool and hip and the PC was this old stodgy geeky dude. And they they really saw that the computer didn't you didn't have to worry about the as long as it did its basic processing, it was an extension of who I was and, and what I was about. And so they 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 really jumped at that. And I think that was the launching pad that then took them to be able to look at music and look at the phone apparatus and see that as an extension of my personality and my needs and my life more than just the phone. And, and this, this is the toughest thing to get to is to see what you do at its prime value. And Andy was talking about it a little bit. And Lauren, you talked about it a little bit. What is ultimately, and, and, and the next example would be Uber. Ultimately, I wanted to get from point A to point B as effectively and as efficiently as possible. And I wanted to see what was going on. If you ever experienced a taxi situation outside of a big city, it is a debacle. You have no idea when the taxi was going to come. <laughs> Uber knew this. They, they m- amazingly gave you the ability to see when it was coming down to the precise minute. It made you feel more comfortable that you weren't going to miss your appointment. Mm -hmm. So they wrapped in the element of fear that we all had that taxi was never going to show up because in a lot of cases it didn't show up. Yeah. And I think another example that, I mean, I think someone someone that I find quite fascinating um, to follow from this perspective of business model is Elon Musk and his various organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what I find intriguing about his thinking is that he often thinks of business models and yes. for example you know he has an end game with various things that are not it's not obvious to to people because he's usually thought of like three or four steps ahead and an example that that i find quite interesting that's reasonably profound i think going forward is that one of the areas that that the tesla car will move into is, is this whole concept of ride sharing but based around the autonomous driving. So in other words, they're building a business model which will have, if you're a Tesla owner, you have the ability to basically have your car um, while you're not using it, drive people around autonomously and and make money from that. And so does Tesla. So that lowers the cost of of owning a Tesla and makes it more affordable. So they're thinking in that sort of step ahead. And I find that quite intriguing in the sense of that's a way of justifying having their price, the price of their car be higher than, than others because they actually have figured out a, a business model that will allow you to make money while, while the car's idle. And then also, and you look at the areas he's in and how he shares technology. They might look disparate, but they actually are, have a lot of similarities and they're sharing technology between each other, which reduces its overall cost of development and R&D. That's the other piece of him. It's just really cool. Now, let's take it a step further and let's look at this crazy example I've always thought about. And this crazy example I've always thought about is your car and advertising. So Airbnb makes a ton of money on on air, which is space in my house that I'm doing nothing with. So can I sell that space in my house when I'm not there or sell that space in my house when I am there? It's space that's going unused that I am paying for. 
Well, the concept turned out to be pretty interesting. But think about that in advertising in your car. I mean, my car is a perfect example of advertise. I can advertise on that car and drive all over the place with advertisements. And I could sell advertising space. You know, it's happening, but not to the level that you would think it would happen. And so when you look at the business model, you would realize ultimately that there's a cost benefit and value around the prestige of me having a certain car and the cost of throwing a bunch of advertisements on that car, like in America, NASCAR. And the, the, the groundswell is, although it looks good from efficiency and uh, marketing perspective, and I'm getting, you know, I'm getting some of this error, I'm getting money for error, my value is less because it, then it makes me look not as prestigious as I want to look. So you, you have to look at all these elements when you're planning these things out with ultimately, you know, the buyer is going to be an individual, whether the individual works for a company or that individual is buying it for themselves. And you have to be able to spot check that value proposition. And like Andy's example of Tesla, I mean, the, the value proposition is I don't have to do anything. And I can sit there and make money. That's everybody's dream, right? So, so let's pause there. And it's a good opportunity for us to unpack the question, how do we know if the business model is working? <laughs> well, the, the, this, is the, this is the Dave Mantica school of business model. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody's going to hate it. And sometimes I question myself, it's easy. How easy is it? Mm. How easy is it to make money? Is it hard? Does it take a lot of effort? Does it take a lot of perspiration? Not underneath the coding and the, and the development. Mm. I'm talking about when people go to buy. Are they mm. buying easily? Is, they, is it something they just want? Is it, is it naturally occurred to them? If there has to be research time, if they start questioning it, you know, Andy goes back to the emotional sale. The harder it gets for someone to take that next step, the more you want to question the business model that you've presented and the value that you're giving folks. And that hardness would be marketing dollars, extra salespeople, you know, extra people to help in the service delivery, customer churn, you know, those type of things. So I look at it, I firmly look at it from easy. If something starts mm. to smell more difficult, I really start in our business. That's where I'm at. I mean, as it gets more difficult, I question the business model. Are we operating right. the right business model given the dynamics and training right now? So when it's not working, so a good example, I think, is Microsoft. Obviously, you know, back in the day, they sold their software via a disk. With digitalization, now you buy it online. They made that pivot. How do you make that kind of pivot? Ah, I, I see. I'll, I'll change your subject. They didn't make it as well until Bomber and, Gate, and Gates were gone. True, true. It took but, a whole new CEO to really see it. And then how they made it is they had, they had the organizational capability of awareness at the enterprise level, but they did have to change who they sold to. And it's challenging your perception of how things are working and taking that sort of holistic view and then seeing how you're going to sell it. So talk to me about that. Because, you know, we, we get wrapped up in our own success. I mean, as a direct mail marketing guy, I mean, every time I, I looked for the next thing, oh, direct mail market, it worked for before, it's going to work again. And that's a self-limiting factor with Gates and Bomber. It was we sell through distributors. We put our software on every, every machine and let the machines sell. And then we make money from the machines. We don't worry about direct sales. We don't worry about that. But once it, the computer became obsolete, but once the computer, especially the server, came virtualized, 
there were starting to become some aha moments that this isn't going to go where it's going to go. But it took their new CEO to take them to the next step to realize, one, we're going to make that stuff free. Two, we're going to sell access, but we're going to sell access to the enterprise level. They had the awareness in the brand. They just didn't have the selling business model. They had to change their go-to-market and their selling, move away from a partner distribution model to more of an enterprise selling model. So sometimes it does take that just a, just a switch in mindset. And the problem is that sometimes we can't change our mindsets very well, which means it takes a switch in leadership. Mm. And that's something that you kind of have to make some hard decisions on, especially at the board level for some of these bigger companies. And then from an owner perspective of a small company, sometimes they have to bring somebody in who knows better than them. But the problem is most, most owners are they own because they want control and then they just end up driving their company into the ground. Or they diversify, as Andy was talking about. So a lot of the big Silicon Valley companies are buying up competition or buying up as a way to kind of avoid innovation internally. Yeah, they do that. But the problem is sometimes one plus one becomes 1.5 instead of two. <laughs> yeah, In most cases, yeah. I see one plus because you still haven't changed the mindset. You buy, I've got, I've lived through three of these acquisitions, maybe not at that big of a level, but big enough to show that the herbarists of, you know, the mindset of I do it right and they're not going to listen to what they bought happens a great deal of time and they do, they basically kill it. What's your advice for how we can get better at getting our business model right? I think number one, it goes back to agile. First off is you have to listen. You have to listen and you have to test and you have to learn. We, you have to listen to other parties and look at different things in different ways. Then you have to go in and understand the heart of value. What, where is the value? What are, you, what are you really giving somebody? And then from there, you have to test the delivery of that in, in, against multiple ways and be very honest in what you're seeing. And then, you know, gauging that from that easy button perspective, number one, which is, which is more, you know, subjective but objectively looking at your return on effort, not just your COGS, but also your GNA as it relates to how many people you need to do something. You might have great COGS, but you still have to have a ton of workers delivering the things that you're trying to deliver. And it still ends up with you know low, low, to low profits or no profits. So, you know, at the end of the day, you have to understand that as things change, it's not you that's going to be successful. It's your and your way of thinking is going to be your ability to bring other people in to help you see different ways and trusting in their thoughts and testing against those thoughts. Andy, do you want to add anything? So David was talking about effort before you kind of unpacked the business model canvas. Is there anything that we can, can take from, from I think that? like any tool is, is hopefully just helpful just to unpack some questions and use it as an opportunity just to get everyone aligned, which is always a big challenge to get people aligned around what actually what is your value proposition to a customer i think the other aspect that i would just reinforce what david was saying if we think about what is why are people looking at agile and agile organizations then you know i think some of the things that i've seen that that make that relevant and make that right from a business model perspective is just some principles like getting closer to your customer so having the people closest to your customer make the decisions and make them quickly with authority those sort of having the right information so getting people getting people access to good information to make good decisions with with decision rights is another key aspect of that and obviously just using a, an iterative and experimental approach to assume that what you do is 
is not necessarily right or it could be improved and continually experimenting in new ways to, to figure out what actually is relevant. So those are sort of the key sort of aspects that I see that, you know, good organizations are starting to embrace. The challenge is that that, that is hard because you've got to unpack a lot of history and you've got to unpack a lot of hierarchy and fiefdoms and, and mindsets. And challenge assumptions okay. and biases. Great. Are we ready for the quick yep. fire round? Yeah, let's do it. Are ready? Absolutely. Okay. When you put high potential product into an efficient business model, it will? Scale easily and make money and- easily. Um, Andy? I sort of qualify that because on the basis of you don't know until you try, but it will most likely succeed, but there's no guarantees until you try. You know you've gotten, gotten it right when, Dave? Oh, easy. You know you've gotten it right if- when it's easy. You're printing money? Well, a sort of slightly extended version of that. What you're selling is profitable <laughs> and scalable. You're, you've got happy customers and staff. And it, and people talk well about mm-hmm. it. Yes. Yeah. Great point, Andy. Yeah. Good job. Great. We can, we can innovate an old business model by? Uh, breaking the mindset that blocks, that holds the old business model in place. Mm. Well said, Andy. That's, that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Apart from that, it's, I mean, all of us read an HBR article that I thought was quite interesting uh, in terms of this key thing. So identify what's your most profitable segment, least profitable, and then what are the changes we can make to those, to those segments. It's a starting point. That's a good place to end. So that's a wrap. That was episode 27 of the Better Work Project from the three of us. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye, team. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Better Work Project. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you have specific suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Continue to fight the good fight. We'll see you next time on the Better Work Project. Thank you.